0: Hey there, and welcome back to Health, Wealth, and Happiness. I'm James. I'm Joe. And today's guest is Rajan Shankara. Am I saying that right? Shankara. That's that's
1: golden.
0: Shankara or Shankara?
1: No, it's getting worse the more he's. <laughs> <laughs> Shankara. Hey, <Eight>, five times. <laughs> well, how do you say it? <laughs>
0: Shankara. 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 Right. I think this may be a take five. <laughs> right. Okay. Hey there, welcome back to Health, Wealth and Happiness. I'm James. I'm Joe. And today's guest is Rajan Shankara. Um, Thanks for tuning in with us today, guys. Uh, Rajan left the world. Just keep going. It's been been a while.
2: It's been a while. It's (laughs) getting put out, by the way. You do know that, don't you? Eh? This is getting put out. Yeah, no, it is fine. But <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll tell you what, I'll take over. No, no, no. No, 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 no,
0: no. No, no. Hey there, and welcome back to Health, Wealth, and Happiness. I'm James. And I'm Joe. And today's guest is Rajan Shankara. Rajan left the world at 19 years old to become a monk, study his mind, find out what the meaning and purpose of life was, a meditation that could take to the higher states of consciousness. Uh, being trained in one of the world's biggest uh, meditation institutions for over a decade, Rajan studied theology, philosophy, and psychology whilst being surrounded by renowned experts on the mind, body, and fluid intelligence. He's helped edit and publish some of the Hinduism's oldest scriptures on health, balance, and culture, and Rajan has mentored over 1,000 individuals and is an author of four books. Raj,
1: it's good to have you on, my man. Hello! Nice to, nice to be here. That was a <laughs> wonderful reading. Well done, well done. How's it all going? Tell us, for the
0: listeners, you know, who
1: is Raj? All right, so it's just your basic story of a, of a distraught teenager who doesn't know what the hell life is all about and just decides to leave everything, uh, sell his business, and go off into the jungle to study meditation. Just <laughs> Not very basic. typical, right? <laughs> where did you go? What's that joke? Where where did you go? I went to the jungles of Hawaii, uh, the smallest island, uh, Kauai. Are you are you guys familiar with Kauai? Mm, no Hawaii. <laughs> so there's like there's five <laughs> islands. Uh, Kauai is called the Garden Island. It's the smallest public one. There's a smaller island called Ni'ihau, but you can't go to it unless you're 100% Polynesian. All right, There's like 100% Polynesian people living there they hunt there there's no cars they speak Hawaiian things like that you can't you can't go unless you have a full bloodline on um, media yeah.
2: what took you to the jungle in Hawaii
1: so so I was a, I used to be a drug dealer and um okay, didn't expect that <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When I was growing up, uh, 15, 16, 17, I decided to, um, I thought that being a man was all about being feared and to be taken seriously meant to be feared. And, um, you know, making all the money you can, um, you know, evading police or going to jail. I thought being a thug was the evolution of every man. And I was wrong. Uh, essentially. But I was very good at it. And I, uh, one night after a few years in, uh, so I was uh, 18 years old or 19. No, I was 18 years old. And I got pulled over one night by a cop in the middle of the night down the street from my house. And I had just come back from a supply run. So my trunk was full of different narcotics and weapons, and I got pulled over for tinted windows on the car, Okay, it was too dark. I had all dark windows, and that was illegal. So uh, right away, the cop said to uh, get out of the car and walk over to the trunk, With, didn't say anything. That's the first thing he said, get out of the car and come over to the trunk. So I get out, and I go to the trunk, and I as I'm walking to the trunk, I basically, give up my life. I, I've pretty much at this point think that my life is over and I'm going to jail and then I'm going to be prosecuted and go to prison shortly thereafter. Cause in, in, in uh, Illinois, Indiana, uh, they're, they're uh, very fast. They don't, you don't wait around that long. Once you're in jail, you get a sentence. And then if you're guilty, you go to prison. Um, it's a very tough jail system. So um, I'm thinking, this is it. I'm done. He's going to find, you know, he's going to open up the trunk and that's it. And he's got a canine unit with him. So he's got a dog. So we're standing at the back of the trunk and and I'm kind of relaxed and calm. And he says, can I search your vehicle? Can I search your trunk? Can I search you? And I said, absolutely, officer. And he said, can my dog uh, search your trunk. And I said, absolutely, no problem, officer. And he just kind of looks me up and down a little bit. And he looks me in the eye um, for a a few seconds, but it feels like he's staring at me like into my soul. And he turns his flashlight off, says, I trust you, and then walks back to his car and drives away. And I'm just standing there at my trunk, um, like free, realizing that Some kind of divine intervention has taken over. So that night, I um, kind of vowed to change my life and never commit a crime again and actually be an honorable, decent person and give back to society. And I did. Uh, So I shortly thereafter... Um, I started a company with my friend, my, one of my best friends, we started an asphalt company and we became very successful. Um, that following year, we started to make thousands of dollars a day and, um, we just started to take over neighborhoods and just parking lots and businesses and law offices. And we were, uh, extremely successful right away. And if you if you hustle in the construction field, you can, you can make a lot of money very fast. And it was too fast. So me and my friend were were making all this money, living on our own, enjoying life. And we were miserable. And I was depressed. Um, I was drinking every night and just a a wreck and a mess. And as soon as the money came in, it was gone. And I kind of didn't understand. I thought life... I thought life was uh, better the more money you have. And I realized that that's not true. So I'm realizing that it's not better to be feared and uh, it's not better to be a mean uh, thug. It's not better to have all the money you want. <clears throat> and so I was kind of confused and I was thinking, well, what the hell am I alive for? Why am I here? What What is the point of being uh, in this body? So my my business partner and friend gave me a book about a monk. Um, one week we couldn't work because it was raining, and if it rains in the in the asphalt world, you're not working. So I uh, I took this week and just read this book that my my friend gave me. He said you got to read this book; it's going to help you out. And I it was a, a glorious tale about this monk's life and how how meaning and purpose came to him by. Surrendering to the forces of nature and learning how to master his mind. So when I finished the book, um, I decided that that was what I was going to do. I I I I told my family that I was going to leave the world and go into the jungle and attain self mastery. And I. And that's exactly what I did. I gave my company away to a friend who needed it. My business partner decided to quit as well. And my sister uh, said she would live with me for a month in the wild to show me how to survive. And, and, um, cause she is a wilderness expert. And uh, my father said, he made me a deal. He said, I'll I'll buy your plane ticket, your one-way ticket to Hawaii. If you come with me to New Orleans um, to clean up after Hurricane Katrina in 2006, this was 2006. And I said, okay, I'll come with you. I went with him for a week. We cleaned up houses. And um, basically the system was that if, if, if you had a house in the Lower Ninth Ward um, and it was water damaged to the point where it was unsafe to live in, the government was going to knock down your house. However, there were these nonprofit organizations going out there and clearing out the the, the rotted walls and um, putting up new walls. And it was very minimal, but at least that meant that your house wouldn't be knocked down. And we were essentially saving people's homes uh, just on our own time. And it was an amazing project. So he, my dad fulfilled his end of the bargain. He bought me my one-way ticket to Hawaii, and I ended up... Finding this monastery about a month in of our of our journey, and ended up staying for twelve years and um, uh, learning self-mastery and teaching um, thousands of people um, everything I knew, and uh, still doing that to this day, leaving I became a civilian in two thousand and eighteen end of two thousand and eighteen. So I'm now thirty four. I started that when I was nineteen. Tell me about what it's like to live in a monastery.
2: I can't even imagine it.
1: Right, that's a good question. So this was a militaristic organization based on discipline, and you had um, hierarchy. So everyone was a rank. Um, you have uh, daily roll calls at five thirty in the morning. If you're if you're um, if you're about five seconds late, there's penalties and what? Uh, hard labor all day. <laughs> Um, so you, you want to be on, in, in line at 5.30 uh, and that's why you had like three or four alarm clocks because if you didn't, you were fucked. And uh, so the first six months...
2: What's an example of hard labor doing what? Well?
1: Oh, man. Say there's like a field, right? Uh, and you're in the sun um, and there's, the field is covered in weeds. So normally you just take a tractor and plow through the field and get rid of and till the soil so that you can plant. Um, but instead of the machine doing it, you did it one by, hand, one, by one with your hands all day. Wow! Uh, so you quickly learn never to miss, <laughs> never to miss roll call. It's rule number one. So for the first six months, you're a cadet. Um, there's no penalty. You're just shown the system. You're expected to do to your best. And um, only when you come back, uh, and take vows and become a monk? Are you, are you, uh, under scrutiny and, and penalized for doing things wrong? So the first six months was amazing. Um, I, I, uh, was allowed entry by a magical process that I talk about, um, in this book that I just published, basically being denied entry and denied training and, uh, you know, eventually making it in. And, um, you, you have to kind of um, prove yourself that you're worthy to, to become a monk. So that involves uh, staying for six months, learning the system, going through each of the five departments, okay, accounting, um, media and publishing, uh, church membership, uh, temple duties and cooking and landscaping um, and construction work. So you, you're cycled throughout the departments with other people in your class. I had, a, I had a, a, about four guys in my class in 2006, 2007. Um, I ended up being the only one making it. And uh, it's rare to make it past the six months. <clears throat> so I made it. And you have to leave and go back home. And you have to change your name legally. And then tell everyone that you're going off to become a mom. You can't just stay there and say, I'm going to do this. It's too easy. You have to go and face people that you grew up with. You have to put it in the newspaper in the town that you grew up in. You have to tell your parents, you have to make sure that it's not, it's not uh, you know, just a, a vacation. This is something that you're dedicating your life towards. So I, I did that. I was like, of course I can do that. And um, it's, it's what I needed. Like the discipline, I was, I was, I was so thirsty for discipline and, and, um, challenge and hardship. And I don't know why, but the, the militaristic aspect spoke to me and and it was like, this is self-mastery. And, and in fact, I do believe after visiting institutions all around the world like this, um, I believe it is one of the most disciplined and, and, uh, highest standard institutions in the world and that's what they told me. They said, this is it going to be easy. Um, you've never done this before. You've got an attitude, you're egotistical and we don't think you're going to make it, but you know, you can, you can try. So I said, you know, I'm going to fucking try. And, um, I was just like when I was a drug dealer, I said, I'm going to be the best goddamn drug dealer I can be. I was like, I'm going to be the best monk I can be. I'm going to do this. And, and I, that maintains throughout whatever i do it's like i'm going to be the best at this that i can and um, i'm either all or nothing kind of guy like when i was drinking i was like i'm going to be the best <laughs> at being able to hold as much as i can when when needed and i can still hold the whole pile bio- <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah,
2: so you're dealing in that trick at the monastery then
1: <laughs> so the monks um yeah we they drank every night oh really yeah, oh, I, we drank, so I made 500 gallons of beer every year. I was the head brewer, and I I was in charge of- What did that taste like? Oh, it was good. I studied uh, fermentation science after about two years in, um, and I learned how to make every style around the world. Okay. And we have- Was uh, it
2: good, or did you just convince yourself it was good? The reason I ask this question, so I've got a lot of clients in Saudi Arabia, and- over there, there is no alcohol, yeah. and I've got a lot of sort of British clients over there, and a lot of guys, a lot of friends over there. And every single person you ever meet in Saudi Arabia makes the best beer in Saudi Arabia. Okay? <laughs> and all but one of the guys, which I'll not name him because it might get him in spot of bother, is <laughs> disgusting.
1: So I've, I've given my beers to beer judges and connoisseurs around the world. And apparently it's, it was good. So yeah, you know, but I'm biased, right? (laughs) Uh, But I didn't fuck around. I mean, I studied, um, I made a yeast lab and inside a brewery inside the monastery. And I, and I studied how to biologically split cells and create pure strains and, uh, ferment the, the finest ingredients. And, um, I think I did a pretty good job. Um, and so, yeah, the the monks definitely relax at the end of the day, but so I mean, I come back, I, I have to beg at the monastery wall outside every day for three times a day before becoming a monk. And so sometimes you're left outside, sometimes you're brought in for the day every day, though, you have to perform this, this, um, hours long, uh, meditation where you're sitting at the wall. And monks are walking by and they're like, you're not going to make it. You know, this is too hard. You might as well leave now. And you are immediately psychologically broken down. And so that they can, and you have to be before the age of 24. You can't, you co- can't come in if you're older than 24. Uh, it's too hard to break an old man. So um, I made it through that stage. I come in and I'm, I'm set to the landscaping and construction department. Um, and I did that for seven years. I learned construction, carpentry, electrical, plumbing, uh, landscaping, farming, gardening, uh, mechanics. You're, you're turned into a machine basically that can meditate and and be clear on the inside and follow instruction and orders and be clear on the outside. And it's yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, um, that's how it is. And there's this philosophical side where you're a monk. But then there's a soldier side and you're a priest at the same time, learning invocations in the temple. And it's, it's truly a classical priest, philosopher, soldier type uh, situation that you had in um, 16th century Japan, 15th century Japan, uh, how priests, Buddhist priests were trained. And that's where the founder got his inspiration. Uh, from Japanese culture. And uh, you're allowed to learn and excel in different areas on your off time. So it's like 5.30 roll call, 6 o'clock meditation, 7 o'clock to 7.15 free time, 7.15 to 8 breakfast, 8 o'clock to 12.30 work, 12.30 to 1.08 uh, cleaning, 1.08 to 1.30 lunch, 1.30 to 3 o'clock gym training, 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock work, 6 o'clock to to 7 o'clock training again, and 7 o'clock to 9, relax, have a drink, have a glass of wine, a glass of beer with with your brothers, and then 9 o'clock lights out, and you do it all over again. So I did that for 12 years. Seven days a week? Five to six days a week. We had one day to one and a half days where you still had to work, but you could uh, wake up at like six instead of Four or five so it was a little relaxed um, on one day or one and a half days depending on the calendar. We didn't use the Gregorian calendar yeah we, we used the lunar calendar so we went off cycles of the moon and the Sun according to Eastern astrology and astronomy. So we used the Gregorian calendar around the world uh, because of Christian domination but in a, in, a, in a monastery practicing an Eastern faith like Hinduism or Buddhism, you wouldn't follow a Gregorian calendar because that's uh, based off um, something that you don't, you don't necessarily follow. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So you had a lot of impact on a
0: lot of people doing what you did for that 12-year period. I mean, for you personally, what was the shift? What made you say, oh, I want to come out of the environment now and go back into the real world? What was that shift? What was that moment?
1: So um, before, before you take final vows, basically this academy takes about 12 to 15 years to graduate from. Meaning, upon graduation of the lower ranks, you you sign your final rank vow. You, you, you become the highest rank uh, that you can, essentially, before becoming a guru. And that's not guaranteed. So you don't know if you become the head of the monastery unless you're appointed that. It's just like you don't know if you're going to be a pope. You're just a bunch of cardinals get together and they're like, this is the guy." Um, so. And same thing in the monastery, uh, to, to assign the founder or to, to assign at the head of the monastery, the, the, senior group gets together and they're like, all right, this is going to be the guy." So my guru was the head. He was chosen, um, from his, from the founder. And, um, so everyone else tries to attain this higher rank and it's called Swami or sannyasin. It means one who's thrown down the world. And, um, you, it's a lifetime vow. So every, everyone before that is on two year vows. And, um, I, and so at the 10 year mark, I was entering the stage before that highest rank. Okay. So I had done well. I had been promoted accordingly. And before you go into that rank, you have to go into a two year period, what's called inner fire. And it's a challenging period, um, of, intense work and meditation and another psychological breakdown known as the death of the ego and you're brought into um, a hellish depressive anxiety state of psychosis so that you can kind of lose your identity and regain it as to who you really are in life and you either go one way or the other you either find out you were supposed to be a monk or you find out you're not supposed to be a monk. So after the 10 years into it, what And you only find this out 10 years into it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I say the the institution itself is, is unique. Every other institution, you know, two years and you're in that highest rank and, and you're like valued, you're worshiped among the community. You know, and you, and they're creating, they're creating amazing people, but at the same time, there's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of bullshit and, and people go into it with ego and they only have to work for a few years. And all of a sudden, boom, they're in the cloth, they grow the beard and they know everything. But this institution was like, we are going to produce the real deal. And so 10 years, you're given this kind of, you know, probation period and, and then two years of, of intense training. And then 12, you know, it's about 12 to 15 years. If you're good, 12 years. If you're, if you need some work, 15 years. All right. So I did it in the twelve. And um when I when I finished with the process, I realized who I was. You know, I was like, I'm 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 not ready to give up all of the things that I've learned about myself. I'm not ready to give up family. I understand the value of family now. For the first time in my life, I understood how precious family was. I wasn't ready to give up um, you know, fitness and 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 personal training and learning about biology and 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 psychology and and helping people. So in the rank that I was going to, you essentially die as an individual and you're reborn into the group. And I wasn't ready to give up individuality. I was finally understanding the power of individuality and how each man and woman themselves are this walking scripture. They're a walking cultural lineage. In and of themselves. So to be a part of the group would have meant self-destruction of who I had become and I had loved who I had become. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge of what they're asking you. And they know that. And so So was it your choice? <clears throat> was it what, your choice? Was it your choice to pull the plug? On it has to be, yeah. It has to yeah. be. You're not in prison, you know, you're not, you're not forced to be there. And and you're but you are forced to make a decision. Right. And uh, I was given two years to to specifically think about the, that decision and I made that decision. Um, and, you know, at this point, you only see your family maybe once every five to eight years. Um, you talk maybe once a year, uh, if that, and taking that vow means that highest rank means you don't communicate with family anymore. You you have a, yeah, you, you have a funeral ceremony. they, they, they change your name again and you are burned. You are burned alive from that side of you, that identity. And you forever serve, you know, in, in that capacity and you've given, you've, you've thrown down the potential world. And that's, that's twofold. You throw down the potential joys that come from the world and the potential sorrows. So the basic idea is He that gives up also gives up the sorrow that comes with it. And that's the idea, to renounce the duality of life. Now, I had changed in that two-year period, and my philosophy had become I value both the sorrow and the joy that comes from life. I value the person you can become through challenge, through pain and sorrow, and and through joy and praise and happiness and family. And that's okay, that's like, and they understand that. But you throw in the towel, essentially. You you throw in the towel, you give up, and you're cast aside. And it's, they give you 2,000 bucks and a plane ticket to wherever you wanna go. And you never existed there. And you're you're you, you don't you you do have nothing to do with them anymore, and you, you didn't do anything there. So, is
2: there no personal belongings? There's no correct. There's no money. There's no uh, correct. Mobile phones. There's, there's there's none of that. So, so you went twelve years.
1: Well, we did use technology. So, it is a powerfully um, uh, IT centered center um, uh, institution. So because it's an, an uh, an, an international organization. Um, and we coordinate things all over the world. We used Macs, we used iPhones. So we were trained to be, um, technologically advanced. I, I used Adobe InDesign. Um, I can create anything in Adobe, um, except for illustrator, but, um, we you're taken through the levels of learning everything you can to benefit the work of the monastery.
2: But you had no personal material belongings for all no, that?
1: No, no. Nothing was mine. I had, to, I had to wipe the data from my computer, from the phone. Everything goes back to them. My robes went back, my beads, uh, my ring went back. So I wear a ring today to kind of symbolize the ring that I once wore for 12 years, except they couldn't take off the earrings. Didn't? there's something about the metal they use that it they they won't come off um and i've had people try to um not come off. they they have to be cut open the the metal no longer opens and closes um with the clasp or with the with the split it's frozen in place and like for example i was at the dentist once and they were going to take a scan of my teeth and they said you have to remove your earrings for the scan to work and um so they had tools and pliers and and no one could take off the earrings and um, they have to they'd have to cut through them with a you know like a little um to a dremel or something like that so um that's the only only my earrings are left from from my time there and everything on the internet so how did you go from
2: having that for 12 years to then Stepping off of that plane. Yeah. Okay. So they gave you $2,000. Where did you go?
1: I went to, I called my sister and uh, I said, I'm I'm not going to be a monk anymore. And she like practically, like (laughs) she practically lost it. Um, And uh, so uh, she said, come to Texas. We're all in Texas now. My family moved at some point from Chicago to Texas. Um, I don't know why, but I've never been very close to my family. So I'm, I'm two years out. I'm rebuilding that time lost. I'm I'm learning how to be an uncle and things like that, but it's not easy. It's not easy. So I, I, they said, come to Texas and a friend of mine who I reached out to who I gave my asphalt company to, I reached out to that guy and I was like, Hey, what's going on? What are you doing? And he said, You know, I'm a successful businessman. I own three businesses in Colorado. You know, he's a former felon. He's like, I wouldn't have made it, you know, without you. Come, come, come to Colorado and and I'll show you how to live again. And then you'll get a place by me and I'll help you out. And so I said, all right, I'm going to spend two weeks in Texas and visit family. And then I'm going to go out to Colorado. So I went to Texas and my brother-in-law and uh, got me a bank account, helped me get a bank account. I put the money in there. Uh, I took some of that money out for a cell phone and- um, How did it
2: feel getting off of that plane after you spent 12 years in a monastery? How did it feel? That must've been so emotional seeing your family.
1: (sighs) Yeah, it was, well, so uh, uh, Hmm. I was trained how to be a soldier. So I felt very much like a soldier. And people would come up to me and be like, how long did you serve? And then, you know, just that's the first thing they would say to me. Um, You know, we were taught to sit up straight, to walk straight, you know, not look at the ground. Um, So I felt like um, uh, having just come out of a war, basically. And I was surrounded by civilians and I felt great. I felt like motivated and I knew what I was gonna do. I knew I was gonna be a mentor. To young people. I knew that right the day I left. So I had two days to leave. Thanks. So I had two days to assign all my duties to someone else in the department. And um, I wrote down some valuable phone numbers of people that I had met along the way. And I reached out to them as soon as possible. I said, I'm I'm not going to be at this email any longer. You'll be able to reach me, um, you know, or I'll reach you in two days, basically with a new, with my new identity and logins. And I met some very amazing people. So, uh, I'm outside, I'm not used to being alone. That's the, that's the hardest thing that I dealt with. I had a little bit of anxiety, um, and shock from being alone. Monks always travel in pairs. No, no less than two. And, um, Why is that? so it's so that you don't get thrown off the path. Right, okay. You know, you see some beautiful woman and you start talking you know, uh, so that it prevents that. So the other monk is kind of guarding and, um, I I, am with family and that was weird. Um, hugging was weird. Like, you know, picking up a kid was, was odd and being a human was difficult because you go from machine to human overnight. And it was like, it doesn't work that way.
2: How did you, your brothers, as you described them, how did they react when you said, right, I'm done?
1: Yeah, so I, I had to meet with the, all, everyone, um, at least all the seniors before leaving and just talk about it. So about half of the, let's see. I would say about a quarter of the guys wouldn't look me in the eyes. They, they wouldn't say a word to me. It was like, you're dead. Instantly so like that. 12 years and then you're dead. Fuck off. You, you, you're weak. You throw in the towel just after 12 years. And so, I mean, these are guys who are 40 years in. So they're institutionalized. They're in for life. Mm-hmm. So uh, then the young guys who I trained and saw come up, you know, they were like, you're going to do so great. You're going to do amazing. We'll miss you. Um, and it was emotional. I cried like a baby for two days. And one of some of the hardest guys that trained me were the softest when I left. They were like, "You're gonna do amazing. We wish you the best." You know, it was it was it was a, a mix of emotions. And then you know, you had the guys who were like, you know, one or two who are like, you know, good luck, but to hell with you. And they said that, you know, you're gonna fail basically. Wow. And these are the people that you put your your soul into. You they're your family. That's all you know. And so they're telling you different things. And so if you have the guys that you trust and they're like, look, the other, don't listen to the, the other guys. They're, they're going to give you the most shit. Um, and it was emotional. It was emotional. And and, and then on the day that you have a plane ride, you, cl- you gather your shit and walk out the gate and never come back. Um, so the guy who picked me up, so I told, a, so a good friend of mine was a tattoo artist. I'm covered in, um, tattoos around my body. Um, And we had a tattoo artist on the island who uh, did cover-ups for the monks. And basically, I initiated this process because I came in with um, tattoos of my past affiliations. And um, I had to get them covered up with art, basically. So uh, I, I organized that within the monastery and um, had it, had someone come in and do this art. And we became good friends because it was hours and hours and hours of work. And so, uh, and he's a world-class artist and he was leaving the island after 12 years as I was. And so I called him up, said, hey man, I'm leaving, I'm gonna miss you. He said, I'm leaving too. I'm gonna, I'll take you to the airport, we'll go get some drinks. <laughs> So he pulls up in the parking lot, he's blaring music, and he opens the door and he's like, Welcome to the world, brother!
2: <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry you not heard music for 12 years.
1: No, uh, we weren't allowed to listen to, like, pop culture, and, and we could only listen to cultural, um, uh, cultural music. Like, um, you know... Um, Indian drums and flutes and things like that. So very soft, meditative, things like that. And those last two years were also um, a silence from anything going on outside the monastery. That was right when Trump got elected and you're cut off from knowing what's going on outside the walls of the monastery.
2: <laughs> Listen, I've got something to tell you. No.
1: Look the hell. So... <laughs> Um, uh, 16 days later, I'm in Colorado. Um, and I, I'm on my friend's couch. Uh, oh no, not a couch. He's got a back room. He clears out his back room um, and it, it's him and his wife and his two dogs. And we basically spend the next few days catching up. Um, and we, he then invites me to uh, a mountain biking trip. So in the monastery, I was actually allowed to learn, um, mountain biking. I I was allowed to buy a bike and and, uh, Hawaii is a beautiful place to explore. So the monks on the day off, they went out, they went hiking and stuff like that and would go to the beach occasionally. So um, I ended up falling in love with mountain biking. And so he was a mountain biker. I was a mountain biker. We, we went on this trip I met his friends and I start to normalize a little bit. And then I come back to his place. Um, and a business mentor who had met me in the monastery uh in lives in california here um i called him when i was getting out and he said okay um i'm gonna set up your business for you and he buys me a website that uh, a domain for five years helps me set it up and starts giving me two clients a day from his client pool so after about a week of being in Colorado, I had enough money to buy a, get an apartment. So I move out of my friend's back room. I get an apartment. I'm up at 4.30 teaching meditation to people in California and 5.30 teaching classes. And then um, my friend in Colorado got me a job in the city, uh, personal training you know, from noon to the end of the day. So I'm working, I'm doing about 12 to 14 hour days on the grind. Doing what I'm doing, and it all starts from there, and just putting what I learned into practice. And I've been doing it ever since I got out.
0: And then that's how all Zen Mind Academy started to grow, you might know say. Yeah. Tell us yeah. a bit about your book as well, whilst we it. The,
1: the personal training um, in the afternoons, that's how I met my partner that I am with, and yeah. we're now in California. Um, I got direct training from my business mentor out here. He helped me out. He helped me get set up out here. And then, um, one of my students that he introduced me to when I first got out, who's the director of NARI, which is a research institute for NASA is, is now, is now helping me work for NASA. So, um, that's how I've just been meeting people and teaching and then People then in return help me and and have been giving me a name for myself so if you could go back all those years to
0: eighteen uh, year old Rajan uh, what advice would you give yourself
1: um, I've thought about that before I, I, I would I would there's a couple parts of me that would say different things I mean everything that happened was for a reason if I didn't get pulled over that night probably would have been in jail or dead I've had Two uh, people tried to kill me before, one with a knife, one with a gun. Um, I've you know, been in and out of uh, county uh, lockup. I've been in and out of courts. I was headed towards death, an early death or jail. Um, that would have happened. That was where I was going. Um, but somehow I got saved. So uh, I would tell that guy, um, I'd probably tell him to keep going, keep doing it because there's gonna be some things happening um, and just to pay attention to the signs. I think it's
0: um, that perspective shift that's that mindset. A lot of us all in that victim mindset of these things, they happen to us, they don't really happen to us, they happen for us, don't enable us to become the next person, fail forward, shift your perspective and become the man you want to become.
1: Yeah, that's why, that, that's, that's why that philosophy, that's why I call the book, everything is your fault. It's like your success is your fault. Your, your, your failings are your fault. Um, it, the more you can absorb as your responsibility, the more people will trust you. The more trust that you have, the more honor and, and responsibility and, and drive and willpower you will have. The more willpower, you'll have meaning and purpose. And then eventually you start changing other people. And you, you finally have a, have a reason to be alive. And I suggest that we're never alive. We never go through anything for just ourselves. We go through it for someone else in the future. And if we can attain that level of detachment, then you can immediately transform all of your reactions into something positive, into something dynamic and fluid. So that you can change on a day-to-day basis and not get stuck in old patterns, old scripts. And, you know, discouragement is like a thing of the past. It's frustration is a thing of the past. Um, and it, it comes up from time to time. And my, my teachers would say, we're not trying to attain perfection. We, that's not possible in this body. What is possible is progress, and we we can immediately kind of transform after our reactions. It's not that we'll ever be reactionless it's not that i'll ever I'll never get frustrated again it's just that if I can instantaneously become another person, then that reaction will subside faster than a blink of an eye and if, if i if I hear news of something that can per, be pursued per, perceived negatively, I can sort of blink like an elite tennis player the difference between an elite tennis player in the olympics and those that come just before them is the ability to recover between when the ball goes out of their hand and comes back up and they have this mental game so tuned in dialed in if i can do that that means i can perceive data and immediately transform it through a series of filters and spit it back out as good this is my purpose this is something that's supposed to happen you're never going backwards. You're always going forward in some other way. Things like that. Where do you, Where do you see this taking you next? Right. Well, um, my partner and I uh, have started a nonprofit uh, organization called Zen Mind Academy. Um, I've I've so far mentored about 500 young men by myself, and I've uh, created systems for young men to evolve out of their own bullshit. Um, and just try to dose them and inject them with responsibility on a schedule. And I want to do that for many, many, many people, as many people as I can. So um, we've gathered some powerful people that I've met along my journey. And we have five board members now. And we, are, we started with a digital curriculum and young men have started to receive the training. And every week we, we highlight one of those young men who have changed their life um, because of the being involved with my work. And um, I want that to continue on until I die and beyond. And then, you know, we're gonna have a facility, we're gonna have grounds, we're gonna have residency programs. For six months, you can come train, learn business, farming, gardening, um, accounting, uh, meditation, you know, Zen training. Uh, physical discipline and then spit back out into the world to change something else.
0: Yeah. Where can we find the book? Where can the listeners find your book? Uh,
1: It it hits Amazon early next year, but you can buy it from me. Um, I'm almost out of the first batch, but um, you go to my website, rajashakar.com slash the book and that'll bring you to the the buying page and, and it should still be up we still have some copies left. Where will,
2: where can the listeners find you? Um,
1: so I do a lot of my work on Facebook. Um, Zen Mind is on Facebook. I do Instagram, but if you Google my name, everything comes up all at once. Uh, I've I've got. Cert- I'm the only one. I'm the only only Rajan Shankara who's on the on Google the first like three pages. Well, oh, man,
0: thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, no, as you, I was guy. saying, uh, as I was saying before, very inspirational what you do. Um and you're leaving a lot of impact. So uh hats off to you, Matt. Good stuff. See you in the next one. Good stuff, guys. Okay, guys.
1: All Right.